Hey, what's going on? This is your girl, Madam Butterfly, and you are tuned into Frequency Bay. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode. So, on today's episode of Frequency Bay, uh, I want to talk about a topic that I was recently introduced to by way of TikTok. Uh, I originally came across this subject and this topic from a really awesome TikToker, a black woman on TikTok. Uh, I believe her name is Felicia. Uh, Her TikTok name is Felicia for the win. Um, And she has really incredible content. And um, on one of her videos, she goes into detail about what uh, social constructionism is. I think it's pronounced it right. Um, (laughs) Social constructionism, which basically is uh, the way it speaks on the way in which our reality is um, constructed, of course. Uh, A little bit about social constructionism. Uh, Social constructionism is a theory of knowledge and and sociology that examines how individuals develop their knowledge and understanding of the world. There is no one precise definition of social constructionism nor of the theories of the the, uh, sociologists in the field. All right, let's see here. Uh, However, social, social constructionism... Social constructionists share four beliefs and uh, practices in common. It says, uh, number one, a critical stance uh, toward knowledge that is normally uh, taken for granted. Social constructionists believe that uh, convictional knowledge is not necessarily based upon objective, underbiased um observations of the world humans according to social constructionisms put more emphasis in certain categories than others even if these categories do not necessarily reflect real um real real divisions uh thus it is the obligation of of a sociologist and psychologist to be aware of assumptions Uh, implicit in knowledge what exists is what can be perceived to exist Uh, number two knowledge exists in a historical and and, uh, (laughs) knowledge exists in a a historical and cultural context Uh, all knowledge or all ways of understanding are historically and culturally relative Uh, what is thought of as normal and the categories and concepts we use are in effect history and culture. For example, historically, children uh, look look took. For example, historically, children took on many adult tasks, uh, but the mid but around the mid to twentieth century brought a renewed um, emphasis on child development and child likeness in childhood, and thus the role of children changed. Interesting. It should be assumed that the ways of understanding that belong to one time and cultural context are necessarily aren't necessarily better than another. Uh, number three, knowledge is sustained by social processes. Uh, knowledge is constructed through inter. Knowledge is constructed through interactions between people and thus the world thus an individual's perspective of the truth is a product of social processes and 
interactions and an individual is engaged in their engaged in rather than uh, objective ob objective observation. And number four, knowledge and social action go together. Uh, each understanding of the world has a variety of social constructs or social constructions that that come with, uh, as stated by in Bird 2015, before the temperance movement, alcoholics were seen as um, entirely responsible for their behavior, meaning that an inappropriate response would be and would would be considered to be punishable by imprisonment. However, after temperance, alcoholism shifted into a sickness uh, for laying responsibility away from its victims. The solution became medical and yeah, the solution became medical and psychological treatment rather than imprisonment. So that is a little bit about um, social <laughs> social constructionism. Uh, I'll definitely be posting this article on my on my Facebook pages as usual. Um, but I wanted to hop into a documentary that explains a bit more about what social constructionism is all about. Um, it's called Human Resources, Social Engineering in the 20th Century. Uh, it's a full-length documentary, and it's about five years old. And it is on the YouTube channel Trust No Man. So let's hop right into it and see where it takes us. Uh, I hope you got your pen and paper to maybe take a couple notes because you just might learn something. You never know. No, no. Well, you will. You will. You'll learn something, of course. But, um, yeah. This film is not for sale. Wait, let me read that. Human Resources contains controversial subject matter, interviews and subjects, creators of such... Creators of some source material may not agree with certain views. Uh, so, okay, so basically what they're saying is that everything that's mentioned in this interview, like the people who put this interview on their YouTube channel may not agree. They may or may not agree. But, uh, yeah, and also this film is not for sale. So no selling. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Let me make sure I got the volume at a correct. Right there. Give me a baby. 
and I can make any kind of man. These are the words of John B. Watson, the founder of behaviorism. According to this worldview, the behavior of organisms, including human beings, is predictable and therefore controllable. In 1920, at John Hopkins University, Watson experimented on several babies ranging in age from three months to a year. The experiments were remarkable in their simplicity. He would present a candle to infants to see if they were afraid of fire. He would introduce animals to their environment to see if the children were afraid of them naturally or only after a traumatic experience. He would make a hissing noise and observe the results. Watson learned that newborn babies had no fear of the dark. He also learned, however, that such fear could be conditioned. And so it was with rabbits. This baby, known as little Albert, initially found delight in touching a rabbit. Yet, as Watson began to clang a steel rod and claw hammer behind the child's head whenever he touched the creature, the reaction became not one of delight, but terror. Soon, the mere sight of the rabbit would elicit fear, even when no noise was provided, a fear that also extended to objects and textures of a similar type. From his experiments, Watson reached a radical conclusion which would come to define political and social engineering in the 20th century. The driving force in society, he claimed, is not love, but fear. It's, it's, we're just, we're just starting, you know, they're doing all the credits that they usually do in the, the beginning of the documentary, so, I'll be hearing much, and I'll definitely post a documentary on my Facebook page as well, so, 
more than welcome to give it a listen or a look. If people do the right thing, they do not to be retrained, or they do not need to be retrained. That was a quote by L.J. Henderson in 1878 at Howard University. Interesting. speculate about why the rat was so useful. I mean, one thing, it reproduced really fast. Another thing is that people were not affectionate towards rats, so you didn't really need to worry about ethical objections unless something truly horrible was done. And finally, I guess you could see the rat as a metaphor for an animal that is tractable. Running a rat through a maze is a pretty understandable metaphor for most of us of running through life. And in fact, if you look at the history of the maze, it goes back through early Christian and even into Greek societies as kind of a metaphor for life. The idea that you somehow wind your way through a maze. Of course, in the Christian tradition, the maze is full of meaning and you're eventually trying to get to God. It's kind of a pilgrim's progress. Whereas in modern uh, society, people like Nietzsche said that you know, life was like a maze that you could never run to the end of. But in the 20th century in American laboratories, the maze was once again adopted as a symbol of hope, not a hope that one could get to God or get to a meaningful life, but the hope that people could actually be controlled in a very scientific manner, That's, that social life could be um, remade on the basis of scientific principles. scientific pioneers, few names will summon the passionate controversies that which surrounds B.F. Skinner. His work has led to the formulation of the science of human behavior, which finds behavior to be predictable, therefore controllable. And for this, he has been both applauded and attacked. The science of behavior is based on the principles of operant conditionings. These principles and their practice have recently become known as behavior modification, sacrilege to some because it has to do with methods by which man can shape the behavior of others. But far from being a scheme to control people without their knowledge, it allows man to study and analyze behavior and to apply its healing potential to such fields as education, medicine, and psychology. Behaviorism, as, as it suggests, is the study of behavior. It's the notion that 
really all that matters is behavior and not the thought processes that lie behind behavior. And it also is very much a method of control. I'm waiting for it to turn counterclockwise now. And then I reinforce that movement. In behaviorism, there's the whole idea of behavior modification, where you can use various kinds of techniques to modify people's behaviors so that they stop doing what you don't want them to do and they start doing what, what you want them to do. So I think it's the scientific aspect of it and the controlling aspect of it that, that uh, defines behaviorism. Because where has it gotten us up until now? It's gotten us, like, on the brink of mass extinction. On the brink of um, mass extinction. On the sixth mass extinction is right around the corner. Uh, I'll do another episode on uh, how bad global warming has gotten. Maybe in the future, like a pop-up episode or something. But capitalism hasn't gotten us anywhere good, unfortunately. Um, and I believe in the original video that Felicia for the Wind had posted on her TikTok, she'd mentioned capitalism and she'd mentioned money. Um, she'd mentioned that as soon as people get to the place where they stop believing in money, it'll fucking disappear. 
absolutely and i i couldn't fucking agree more absolutely just ab yes a thousand times yes Civilizations usually come as a package deal. There's a light side and a dark side. Every civilization believes in its own propaganda, so it tends to emphasize the light side and forgets about the shadows. For the behaviorist, it started with plants. Julius Sachs at the University of Würzburg enumerated a set of tropisms defined as any directed response by an organism to a constant stimulus. An example is the way an ivy plant will turn its leaves toward the window in order to gain exposure to sunlight. Sachs' protege, Jacques Loeb, took it to the next level by creating a stable of insects he called durable machines. In his laboratory at the University of Chicago, he trained cockroaches through the use of simple tropisms. Because of the insect's bilateral symmetry, a light shone on one side caused it to move in the other direction. In Russia, Ivan Pavlov moved on to animals. The term Pavlov dog has become synonymous with the conditioned reflex. Pavlov discovered that a dog would salivate when it began to associate a stimulus, such as a ringing bell, with food. In America, John B. Watson finally graduated to human beings. John Watson was an extremely interesting character in the history of American social science and also the history of American advertising, which is a not insignificant <clears throat> connection between the two. His dissertation in 1906 was about the kinesthetics of the rat as it navigated a maze, and his idea was that he could remove one by one the senses of a rat, like remove its ability to see, remove its ability to hear, its ability to feel, and then see whether the rat could still make its way through a maze that it had been trained to navigate. So in his mind, rats were always stand-ins for human beings and human subjects. He called it psychology as the behaviorist views it, and it was basically his manifesto for behaviorism. And in it, he declared that behaviorism was a science of human behavior and that there was a method available to make a technology by which human beings could be shaped in any way that a scientist desired. Watson always was interested in control. One finds this theme throughout his work. He said, give me a baby and I can make any kind of man. Watson continued to experiment on babies and other living things until his star began to fade. At the end of his life, he wrote nostalgically of his failure to put together what he considered the ultimate experiment in social engineering, a multi-ethnic baby farm. I sometimes think I regret, Watson wrote, that I could not have a group of infant farms where I could have brought up 30 pure-blooded Negroes on one, 30 pure-blooded Anglo-Saxons on another. Excuse me? Oh my goodness. And 30 Chinese on a third, all under similar conditions. Watson's dream may seem bizarre to modern ears, but implicit in the concept was a real desire to see the question of race answered once and for all. Don't do that. It's not unlike thousands of other researchers at prestigious universities uh. across the United States. In the late 19th century, alongside the rise of Jim Crow segregation in the 1890s, what you saw is that corporations develop a much more elaborate way to justify the fact that the wealthy corporate elite, which was without exception, 
white to its and male <laughs> um and this is my primary issue when it comes to people of color black indigenous brown people who go into these spaces that have such a terrible um history that we have such a terrible history with um so much of our history has been flushed down the toilet and framed in a way that's more harmful than anything else and it just it just it just doesn't sit right with me um and then we turn around and I have episodes like I had the last one where, you know, there's conversation about the, the health disparities that exist in places like, you know, uh, modern American medicine. Um, health disparities because of the type of past and history that we have in relationship to places and spaces like, you know, science, history... Um, English, I don't know how this one is the same thing, but science, um, medicine, um, and, and other places, places that I'm forgetting, of course, but just those are, those are two examples. This is, uh, Sharon Smith, who is an historian who's currently speaking. the reason why that reason has its basis in what became known as the eugenics movement you were born with either good genes or not good genes I can hire one half of the working class to kill the other half this was a uh, quote by John <laughs> by John Gillard, a U.S. financer uh, and railroad businessman in 19, I'm sorry, 1836 through uh, 1892. This was a nutcase, a psychopath. Anybody who says anything like this in public, out loud, you're, you're not, you're a disgusting human being, in my opinion. In the case of Miss Mason, I can see no reason for the operation that's been recommended. The girl is perfectly normal. She's hardworking and has a good reputation. Do you know? So this is a clip from Tomorrow's Children, uh, 1934. Very old. Um. <clears throat> Anything about her family background? Oh, yes, Your Honor, I do. There are several other children, aren't there? Yes. What is their condition? One is a cripple, two others might be classed as feeble-minded. Isn't the oldest son in jail? Oh, yes, I believe so. And knowing all that, you still contend that this girl should be allowed to bring more people like that into the world? Those who wow. have good genes should be encouraged to reproduce, and those who are, wow. quote, unfit should be discouraged from reproducing, from having children. That eventually went into forced sterilization programs, which started in the United States, directed against African-Americans, Native Ooh. Americans, 
immigrants in particular. Eugenics was Ugh. a pseudoscience rooted in the idea that you can, A, recognize pre-biologically determined differences in people based on their ethnicity, and that, B, you could construct a policy that favors some ethnic groups over others, both in terms of immigration policy and in terms of uh, integration into U.S. society based on this hierarchy of heredity. This pseudoscience, this philosophy, gained a lot of traction in the United States amongst the industrialist class, especially at a time when immigrant workers, who made up a large percentage, if not the majority of workers at the turn of the 20th century, were beginning to form unions, were beginning to create collective organizations, their own political parties, to challenge the conditions of industrialization, which were horrific and oppressive. It took root in the universities. It took root amongst the highest offices of government. Calvin Coolidge, for instance, Republican president, believed that, and even stated his belief that a lot of social problems were associated with inferior races. We see, ultimately, this philosophy is going to play an important role in shaping immigration policy after the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924, which essentially creates a national quota system that favors immigrants based on their ethnicity and based on their nationality. One fact that is important to understand about the eugenics movement is that it was created and funded by the corporate elites that ruled America coming into the 20th century. It was the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, um, the Kellogg family of the cereal. They funded these research programs at universities, all of it created, funded by these corporate um, families, the Rockefellers in particular played a, a particularly uh, devious role. As the eugenics movement developed, it went in a, a, a really horrible direction. Gegen dieses Gesetz der natürlichen Auslese in den letzten Jahrzehnten furchtbar gesündigt. Wir haben unwertes Leben nicht nur erhalten, wir haben ihm auch Vermehrung gewährt. Die Nachkommen dieser Kranken sahen so aus. I really like this documentary. Um, unfortunately, it's not talking enough about social constructionism enough for me. Uh, so I think I may roll into an article after this and see if I can't pull up a uh, an interview in relationship to the uh, in relationship to the topic. All right, let's go. Right now they're playing The Black Stork, a 1917 American pro-eugenics film. I didn't know they had films, but uh, 
That's that bullshit. <laughs> wow. The Rockefellers would play a key role in the advancement of social engineering in the years between the Great Wars. Between 1922 and 1929, an arm of the Rockefeller Foundation gave out almost $50 million toward the pursuit of the social sciences around the world. According to historian Judith Seelander, the spur was a need for better organization in society at large. What had begun as a public relations ploy to assuage public anger in the face of unscrupulous business practices and violent suppression of working people, the Rockefeller charities would set out to change society as a whole. Institute of Human Relations was founded in 1929. It was given uh, $7 million initially from the Rockefeller Foundation just a couple of months before Black Tuesday occurred in October of 1929. So according to my calculations, if you factor in all the money that Rockefeller eventually gave the Yale Institute and the other monies from the government, this was the largest social science project that's ever been funded in history. The desire for better order was epitomized by the Hawthorne experiments, which created a new model for organizing and supervising industrial workers. They are widely credited with putting the human factor back into industrial relations. Yet, as with previous experiments in the workplace, the ultimate effect would be to increase the power of the great capitalists at the expense of everyone else. We're not automators. We have eyes to see, ears to hear, and mouths to talk. <laughs> Excuse me. That was a quote by Shop Steward at GE Bridgeport. Forces of production. Makes sense. The story of what is now termed scientific management, or Taylorism, begins decades earlier when Frederick Winslow Taylor was hired by Bethlehem Steel to increase efficiency in the industrial workplace. Once upon a time, the greatest theorist of the free market, Adam Smith, had warned that division of labor would create a catastrophe for human society. Frederick Taylor disagreed. In Taylor's view, there was far too little division of labor. Factories could be run far more efficiently if tasks were mechanized and broken down even further. In a series of experiments, he set out to reduce every task performed in a factory into individual units, measuring how long they took and setting targets for workers to meet. On its surface, scientific management seems like an excellent idea. Increased efficiency allows more products to be manufactured in a shorter amount of time. Yet there was another, more sinister motivation lurking in the background. Ever since the 19th century, machine shops had been a bastion of skilled labor. 
What this meant was that a considerable degree of power remained concentrated on the shop floor. The same skills that made production possible also enabled machinists to challenge management when they felt they were being treated unfairly. For management, this was an unacceptable bargaining chip. For Taylor, it was simply inefficient. You find that the man does not change very much, whatever else changes. They boast in the aeroplane world, it will take some other countries a generation to catch up with our qualities. And it is not because their engineers are inferior, but because our ordinary workmen have a traditional skill behind them. Taylorism was certainly about de-skilling. It was about studying what skilled workers uh, did to decompose those tasks into their basic elements and then teaching people to do specific aspects of it without learning the, the entire set of or array of activities that were involved and are involved for a skilled person. Uh, in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's a mechanism of control because you dictate to people, well, you do this part of the entire task and, and you don't do anything else and you dictate to 8, 10, or 12 people the various specific aspects of the whole task rather than allowing a skilled person to decide how the entire tasks should be done. So oh, that is so gross. Oh my goodness. To the degree that this involves de-skilling and involves control, it tends to take power away from workers, it takes uh, power away from, therefore, the collectivity of workers, and therefore um, makes them less likely to be rebellious, makes them less likely to form various kinds of movements that would operate against, uh, let's say, broadly, the capitalist system. So this is a, something that management thinks is a good idea for the workers, but is not a good idea for them. They have to be free to be to be creative. And in fact, Henry Ford, in in his biography, said exactly that. Basically, he said something like, uh, "You know, I'm I'm too smart to have these kind of rational principles imposed on me. But those stupid workers out there, we need to impose those principles on them because they wouldn't know what to do if." if we didn't impose those principles on yeah. them. So rationalization, McDonaldization, is always something that those on top want to impose on, on the bottom, but something they don't want to affect their work at all. Henry Ford, in effect, invented the automobile assembly line and, and more generally the system that came to be known as Fordism. One aspect of Fordism had to do with hierarchical control over workers and more specifically, the control over workers by the assembly line. So all a worker might do, for example, is put a hubcap on a car as that car went past as it was being constructed on the assembly line. So instead of a thinking, creative, skilled worker, you had a kind of mindless kind of worker who repetitively did the same task over and over again. Well, that kind of worker is robot-like. You are forced into a series of robot-like actions. The most interesting thing for me about McDonaldization or Weber's broader concept of rationalization is the idea of the irrationality of rationality. That these rational systems 
inevitably spawn all sorts of irrational consequences. This is supposed to be an efficient system, yet it ends up being very often inefficient. It's dehumanizing one of the kind of ultimate uh, irrationalities from my point of view. In their study, Where Have All the Robots Gone? Harold Shepard and Neil Herrick confirmed what many had long suspected. People trapped in an unrewarding work life were not only more likely to be dissatisfied, but were also more likely to suffer from low self-esteem, a feeling of helplessness, alienation, and to be plagued by a variety of mental disorders. The workers, who were the most dissatisfied and whose mental health was the most impaired, were the least likely to vote or participate in community organizations. If you work in an environment where you're beaten up all the time, well, you're beaten up. Moreover, if you work in an environment that is so fragmented, that so um, robs you of dignity and so robs you of the expression of your own capacities, then they'll be diminished. You'll be deadened. You'll be bored. You will be reduced in your potentials. And you are not too likely to take initiative in other domains either. This is why Taylorism is pursued. This is why fragmenting of work is pursued. It weakens the workers, not just on the job, but in their communities too, which is what you want to do so that they don't take more of the income from themselves, thus reducing profits for the elites. So it's a perfectly sensible policy, a perfectly sensible approach, a devil's approach, but a perfectly sensible approach from the point of view of those at the top who are trying to stay there and who are trying to advance. Moreover, if they don't, they just get wiped out. So it's not even really a, an option. What you'd have to do is to create a new kind of economy in which these situations and these conditions don't restrict our options. The corporate entity, corporate person, it's not really a person, but call it an entity, is it pathological? Answer yes. Why? Because it drives toward profit regardless of the broader implications. It doesn't matter if your drive toward profit induces pain and suffering, promotes, you know, generates black lung disease in a mind, or pollutes the environment, or literally destroys the society. It doesn't matter. You're forced by the nature of the social relations inside and among corporations, the market system, to pursue, to accumulate, to pursue profits. hierarchy is the defining characteristic of scientific management, it should not be surprising that it was met with great praise, not only by the capitalist world, but by fascists and authoritarian communists. Mussolini set up a propaganda arm of his government to promote Taylorism, while Lenin wrote in Pravda in 1918 that we must introduce in Russia the study and the teaching of the Taylor system and its systematic trial and adaptation. As in America, workers in Russia were unimpressed with scientific management. A major contributing factor to the Kronstadt Rebellion of 1921 was the introduction of Taylor's techniques. Immediately after the rebellion was crushed, a government document on rationalization spoke of the instinctive mistrust of all workers toward all kinds of experiments directed at extracting greater productivity from them. Workers at Kronstadt had envisioned a decentralized system where they would actually own and control their own work and resources, but Lenin had something different in mind. Socialism, Lenin wrote, is merely state capitalist monopoly, which is made to serve the interests of the whole people 
and has to that extent ceased to be capitalist monopoly. The new means of control have been created not by us, but by capitalism in its military imperialist stage. The Leninist system was one of the greatest blows that socialism suffered in the uh, 20th century, maybe second only to fascism. I mean, as Lenin took power among its first acts, along with Trotsky, were to destroy the socialist institutions that had arisen in the pre-Bolshevik period. Uh, Soviets, uh, factory councils, uh, constituent assembly, which was dominated by left social revolutionaries, largely peasant-based. And of course, they went to war against the anarchists, a major war to try to wipe them out, the Mahmoud's army and so on. And there was a sort of a logic behind it. Now, they were orthodox Marxists, unlike Marx, incidentally. Uh, they believed in a version of Marxism that said that uh, revolution can't come in a backward peasant society, which is what Russia was. It was what we would now call a third world country undeveloped peasant society with some development but owned by the West and so on. I mean, a, a highly educated and productive intellectual class, but that's also true of third world societies. So they thought this couldn't happen. So therefore we have to drive this backward population through industrialization by force. And then later on by the iron laws of history and so on and so forth, uh, will come to socialism. Of course, it's all nonsense, but uh, uh, so they essentially laid the basis for a totalitarian system uh, with an ideological doctrine behind it. When the Soviet Union collapsed, I actually wrote an article uh, saying this is a victory for socialism, small victory for socialism. It just couldn't get published. Nobody knew what it was talking about. The world's two major propaganda systems, the West and the Soviet Union, they both decided, made, determined to use the word socialism to refer to the totalitarian system of the Soviet Union. I mean, the West did it to discredit socialism, the Bolsheviks did it to try to gain you know, the credit associated with genuine socialism. Well, when the world's two propaganda systems agree, it's going to be very hard for people to extricate themselves from it. So now socialism, as the term, has been degraded to mean the form of totalitarianism uh, instituted by Lenin, uh, carried through by Stalin. And I was going back to Spain. It was entirely natural that they should be in the lead in destroying the popular revolution. Bakunin, much earlier, had predicted all of this. He said that in, in the future, it will be two forms. Uh, one form will be they'll take over the state and they'll create a red bureaucracy which will be the most uh, vile and brutal regime the world's ever seen. And there are others who will understand that they can't take over the state. So they have to serve concentrated private power and state power. And they'll be the technical intelligentsia who you know, implement the policies of the masters in uh, what we now call the liberal democracies, which is a very good prediction. It's one of the few predictions in the social sciences that actually came true, which is one of the reasons why nobody ever studies it. It's much too dangerous and too insightful. In both the Soviet Union and the United States, ruling elites would set out to master the psyche of the average worker, and from the Hawthorne experiments came new insights. 
researchers found that the very act of allowing workers to talk about their feelings reduced the possibility wow. of agitation and rebellion. <laughs> it made workers feel as if they mattered, even if the social relations remained fundamentally the same. The Hawthorne experiments, initially, it was to be a purely scientific study, uh, and science tries to get rid of unnecessary things. Let's make everything equal so there aren't any other factors than the ones we're controlling for. So they were trying to see what effect changing the lighting would have on how workers felt uh, and also how much they produced. It wasn't any really quality concern, but quantity of production and uh, worker satisfaction, which can ultimately affect the quantity of work as well. But to do that, they said, well, we don't want to have employees being disgruntled about this and that being a factor. So we will discuss with the employees what we are going to do. There were complete discussions and the, uh, the employees would say, suggest trying this and trying that. Uh, and what they found was no matter what changes they made, including putting the lighting back to where it had been before the experiment began, to see what difference that made. Every time they made a change, having discussed it with employees, production went up and employees' uh, satisfaction went up. Now, if it had been done in a democratic context, immediately the reaction would have been, let's look at the participation. But this was done in a hierarchical context. So what came out of it was a public relations school, industrial relations school, developed out. And most of that meant was taken as a way of trying to control employees uh, by trying to manipulate them ideologically. Not that managers hadn't done that before, but now there was a whole school of doing that. I would say the wrong lesson was learned. Yeah, put out a suggestion box so that employees can feel they're being asked, but you don't necessarily pay any attention to it. In a real teamwork organization, or a participatory organization. Employees uh, get to take each other into account. They begin caring about each other. I've seen this going, going into a plant and seeing it develop over time, the amount of participation increase, and the attitudes of employees begin to grow, and the care that people have about each other. And then that can easily expand to care about the community. And also, work can be reorganized because people have a say. There are better ways to do things. If we uh, are treated better, we'll work better, and, and so forth. Now, the broader social impact of doing these kinds of things, as we've seen earlier, hierarchical control makes people feel worse about themselves. Mm -hmm. they, uh, it creates more mental illness, creates bad relations outside the workplace. Well, if people spend most of their time in a collaborative workplace, they become more collaborative. They care more about each other. You can have a... In a relationship, I'm almost positive something like that would be called a narcissistic relationship. Would it not? Um, I think that people learning to say no when they're in a relationship with a person or people that take them for granted... I really feel as though eventually that will translate into what people won't and will accept on the job. And the day in which we come to that realization as a group is the day that I, that's, that's, that's the day I'm waiting on right there. That, that.
that's going to be the final hurrah, in my opinion. A democratic corporation, a worker-owned business, and a worker-owned business that really is managed by the workers, that uses the corporate form. And, and that gives us some hope because it's possible, at least theoretically, to reform uh, corporations. Participatory economics is the name for a different way to do the economy. It's a, it's a different approach to accomplishing production, consumption, and allocation economic functions, uh, different than what? Different than capitalism, and different than what went under the name socialism, but I tried to describe as coordinatorism, as this class of, of engineers and managers and doctors and lawyers being at the top. Uh, so participatory economics, so Paricon is, is an alternative to all of that. It's a different kind of economy. Mm -hmm. In a participatory economy, in a good economy, um, Instead of organizing economic life to keep a small sector of people on top and to enrich them beyond any sensibility and to utilize productive apparatus even when it entails doing things that are a complete waste of time, building missiles that will never be used, on and on and on. Instead of all that, we would produce uh, and distribute for purposes of human fulfillment and development. You don't need all the advertising. You need sensible information um, rather than people competing with advertising that has nothing to do with actually communicating what the benefits and costs of, of production are. You don't need all this military production. Of course not. You don't need nor do you want to generate all kinds of activity and, and uh, product which doesn't make people better off. struggle for workplace democracy and equal rights, mass production continues apace. Taylorism, combined with human relations, make up the cornerstones of worker management in the 21st century. In China, scientific management is taken on nightmarish proportions. So extensive is the division of labor that millions of people are forced to perform roughly the same motion thousands of times a day. In the United States, Workers in some assembly plants are required to be in continual motion for up to 57 seconds a minute. In Indonesia, sweatshops owned by corporations like Nike chart productivity down to a thousandth of a second. In offices and service industries, corporations are increasingly resorting to video surveillance and computerized monitoring. One of Frederick Taylor's descendants, John Taylor Gatto, has rebelled against his forebear's legacy. An award-winning teacher, he has also rebelled against the state of his profession. It's a quote by Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein that says, education is what remains after one has forgotten everything he learned in school. Interesting. So we're going to stop it right there. Um, I'm going to pick it up. Uh, I'll pick it back up um, in about two, two to five minutes. Um, this is really good, and I still got about a, at least a good 45 minutes left. Um, but uh, thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for tuning in for me, with me, rather. Um, and I will be back. Um,
back. Let's get right back into it. So we are, will we last when we left off? So when we left off last, um, we were talking about the relationship between workers and their jobs, workers, employees, and their jobs, and the way in which um, the economy has become so toxic, and how a lot of these bigger organizations are incredibly um, psychotic. So let's let's continue. Let's continue. The key is the word compulsion. The idea of drawing all children, all young people into some universal compulsion. The idea of drawing children, all young people, into some universal program administered by the leader or the leaders is as old as Plato, probably older. But nowhere on earth was that able to be imposed until northern Germany, under the military rule of the Prussians, finally imposed that in 1818, so on the first, second decade of the 19th century. That is the first time it was announced in other places, but never was it able to be successfully administered because the idea is so crazy and so damaging inherently that people simply disobeyed the law. The experience of Prussian Germany was that it was possible to convert sovereign human beings into human resources. That's a translation of a German compound. And that by making these people incomplete, making them unable to think in contexts, but they could be converted into specialist tools for management, scientific management. Horace Mann was hired by the railroad and coal interests of New England to bring about compulsion. He had no interest in schooling. He was an ambitious young politician. He did get compulsion laws passed. In 1852, once it was in Massachusetts, it spread very, very slowly. It wasn't for 15 more years that another state followed suit. So it hardly was a gift uh, to the populous portion of America. I smile a little bit when I say that because the mythology is that it was greeted everywhere with great enthusiasm. Not only did parents resist compulsory schooling, they sometimes did so violently. So vehement was the opposition in Barnstable on Cape Cod that state militia were brought in to march children to school under armed guard. A primary reason why the mass of the American population resisted compulsory schooling 
was a widespread belief that its purpose had little to do with education and everything to do with control. Their suspicions were well-founded. An undercurrent of class warfare runs through early American education documents. The U.S. Bureau of Education Circular of Information for April 1872 explains that inculcating knowledge teaches workers to be able to perceive and calculate their grievances, thus making them more redoubtable foes in labor struggles. Such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry. Sixteen years later in the report of the Senate Committee on Education is equally explicit. We believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years manifesting itself among the laboring classes. The first Red Scare, in my judgment, is the trigger event for the embedment of compulsion schooling in the United States. The uh, Red Scare of 1848 is probably the reason that one American state fell under the compulsion regimen. There are literally thousands of books from the period 1880 to, say, 1920, roughly, that deal with how you scientifically engineer a factory or a church congregation or young people in school. School which followed a general outline of converting kids into obedient tools now took on a very, very mechanistic aspect under this surge of scientific engineering. In 1903, the Atlantic Monthly called for adoption of scientific management in schools. Prominent education theorist William C. Bagley stressed a need for unquestioned obedience. The new system would train children for life in 20th century America. Their role to fulfill the needs of commerce, industry, and government. In a community with the best education, more shoppers, more merchandise moving, a higher average of per capita sales. In the other community, fewer shoppers. Maybe things will look up in the long run. In the first community, there's a larger magazine circulation per 1,000 population. A much smaller circulation in the second community, a decline in demand. The student of typing, shorthand, and business machines becomes a producer upon graduation, a tax-developed community asset. He prepares for radio and electronics. His future promises a profit on the taxes invested in him. As education raises the cultural level, so it must also introduce youth to the know-how of production and stir interest in precision, efficiency, and service. With graduation, the community receives a new supply of young people who want a better life on the one hand and who have the ability to work for it on the other. Now the tax investment returns to the taxpayer. In order to aid in the process, the Gary Plan was introduced. It had a new organizational scheme in which different subjects would be taught by different departments. Similar to the breaking down of factory jobs under Taylorism, students would be herded from classroom to classroom in order to digest a stream of standardized factual information. Like Pavlov's dogs, they would do so at the ring of a bell. Then go where 
first lesson I saw was the terrible confusion that's in any school as people race about at bell marked intervals the time on it experience of mental development is that it occurs with strong concentration not with fragmented attention class position you will not find the doctor's son however ignorant he is in uh, the class with the marginalized kids indifference is wonderful this is a factory to create indifference to intellectual things to ideas they have to be whipped ordered and disciplined to do anything or just as bad they have to be offered bribes to do it emotional dependency sure probably half of the 60 million kids who attend school in the United States removed from their own families at a very vulnerable age become emotionally dependent on a pat on the head a smile avoiding an insult intellectual dependency in spite of rhetoric to the contrary a teacher's nightmare is invested in those kids if any who actually have learned how to think for themselves the teacher's job is not only to convey bits of information that should not be challenged but also to convey how you connect those bits of information but not practice in doing that for yourself you memorize someone else's connection what is a circle a circle is a closed curve in which all end points on the circumference are equally distant from the center point very good provisional self-esteem this this really ties into the grades these test scores the signs of approval by the teacher you're allowed to feel good about yourself if an authority issues a signal that you can do that on the other hand if the authority condemns you the only way you can feel good about yourself is to become an outlaw trying to do. If our goal is to help kids become critical thinkers, lifelong learners who really enjoy thinking and reading and playing with numbers and ideas, if we want to help them become good learners and good people who can create and sustain a functioning democracy, then education would look very different from the way it looks right now, at least in our culture. We would have to question the use of grades. What research finds is that when kids are trying to get good grades in school, three things tend to happen they begin to lose interest in the learning itself now the purpose is just to get a good grade uh, rather than to engage with the question or problem at hand second 
they tend to think less deeply and retain uh, knowledge for a shorter period of time compared to kids who don't have any grades. And third, they tend to pick the easiest possible tasks. That's not because they're being lazy, it's because they're being rational. If we tell kids we want to see a better report card, we want to see higher grades, naturally they'll pick the shortest book or the easiest project because that maximizes the chance of achieving that goal. So regardless of what your, your goal is, if, there's, if you're interested in assessing kids and teachers and schools to see are we doing a good job here, you would never need tests in order to see whether kids are learning and where they need help. And you would never need grades to report the results of the evaluation we place on those assessments. We would certainly do away with standardized testing, the kind of testing used in particular states or provinces uh, where everyone takes the same test and then you compare everyone's scores. These tests tend to measure what matters least. It tends to be a good marker for family income because what standardized tests mostly measure is the size of the houses near a school. Uh, but it's the case that some of our deepest thinking kids just don't do well on tests. Some kids who get great scores have never had an original idea in their lives. Well, I thought you just judged by tests. Oh, no. There are many other things besides tests that we use. Of course, we do consider a child's general ability and the way he scores on standardized tests, but that's not all. Competition builds character. Uh, in fact, what we find is that by any reasonable notion of character in terms of psychological health or self-esteem, that competition undermines that and creates a kind of neurosis because we come to think of ourselves as good and competent only to the extent that we have uh, defeated other people. And so we're always playing this uh, desperate king of the mountain game where we're all worried about triumphing over other people and stepping on their faces and looking at them as if they're going to step on our faces. That has two effects. One is it's horrible for us in terms of psychological development because there's a perpetual sense of disease and anxiety. But second, it very logically has a destructive effect on our relationships. We compete because we're raised that way, not because we're born that way. I mean, take, for example, the belief in survival of the fittest, which is seen as a Darwinian notion. In fact, Charles Darwin never even used the phrase uh, survival of the fittest. That was coined by a um, right-wing social thinker in the 19th century named Herbert Spencer, who tried to corrupt Darwin's thinking to his own reactionary political purposes. What Darwin talked about was natural selection, which means that the individual organism that's best able to adapt to a changing environment is more likely to be around to survive and reproduce. But that doesn't specify competition as a mechanism. In fact, often the active avoidance of competition, if not the deliberate uh, pursuit of cooperative strategies, turns out to make it more likely that organisms and entire species will survive. The research consistently shows that competition not only isn't necessary for excellence, but tends to impede excellence on most tasks. And the more challenging the task, the more ingenuity, problem-solving skill it requires, uh, the more competition tends to disrupt uh, 
that achievement. Excellence pulls in one direction and competition pulls in another. And in fact, another kind of research study corroborates that. If you take a whole bunch of people and give them a task to do, some kind of problem to work out, and half of them are told, see if you can figure out how to do this task. And the other half are told, this is a contest with a prize to whoever wins, whoever does the best job. Study after study after study across cultures, across gender, across ages. Uh, find that uh, the people who compete, who have to compete, end up doing an inferior job on that task. At the moment, it appears uh, as though much of what happens in schools in North America is really for the convenience of people who have most of the power. There is, if anything, an act of discouragement of critical questioning. Corporations claim they want kids who are able to think outside the box, but only so far as they're caught within a larger box that works to the advantage of the free market, um, which means that the market economy, based on competition, based on economic rather than human considerations, uh, ends up controlling the system. Today. Many people assume that antisocial and even violent behavior by young people is a completely natural phenomenon. Yet anthropological studies reveal this to be a myth. Our widespread use of the term juvenile delinquency exposes not only the failure of modern schooling, but of an important concept given expression by the behaviorists. They called it the frustration-aggression hypothesis. The frustration-aggression hypothesis was an attempt by behaviorists at Yale to combine their own science of behavior with that of the Freudians. Simply put, when people perceive that they are being prevented from achieving just rewards, their frustration is likely to turn to aggression. This study by the behaviorist Hobart Maurer showed that when rats could not achieve their expected reward, they began to take out their frustrations on each other. The scientist notes that two animals which have lost their hold on the pellet, frustration, will be seen to turn on each other, displaced aggression. Similarly, in a 1941 experiment, toys were placed behind a wire screen where children could see but not touch them. When they eventually gained access to the toys, their play became considerably more destructive. On the one hand, human beings are not rats. Armed with the necessary information, we can come to a logical conclusion about who is to blame for our frustrations in life. Rightly or wrongly, we often point the finger squarely back at ourselves. Yet in the hands of politicians and demagogues, frustration-aggression can be a potent tool in deflecting anger onto scapegoats. They want to throw white children and colored children into the melting pot of integration, through out of which will come a conglomerated, Malata, mongrel class of people. We are the Ku Klux Klan. We hate niggers, we hate Jews, we hate faggots, and we hate specks. We kill the faggots, we kill the lesbians. I said, God damn it, we kill them all.
I'm not going to discuss it. If he says murder gets murdered, if a murderer gets murdered or, or slain, capital punishment, that's fine with me. Line them up and we'll clean up our nation overnight. Start with the abortionists. Might as well get rid of a few of those beasts. I'm so sick of them. I'm so sick of the brainwashing about Islam and Muslim. So this guy talking is Michael Savage on the talk show host. Um. And the Quran, shove it! Shove it all! I'm sick of it! Get, get, take the music off. These throwbacks think they're better than you underneath it all, and 90% of them are on welfare. Speak it out at the supermarket. Uh. Tell them what you think of Islam. Tell them what you think of Muslims. Oh, wow. We're talking about illegal immigration. So now, in addition to venereal disease and the other leading exports of Mexico, women with mustaches and VD, now, now we have swine flu. And when you scoop up some of the world's lowest of primitives in poor Mexico and drop it down in the middle of the United States... Just say you're fucking racist. Just, just say, I'm a racist. And my views are racist, and my feeling, my feelings, and my objectives are all inherently racist and misogynistic because I'm a piece of shit. Poor, without skills, without language, not sure our culture, not sure our hygiene, haven't been vaccinated. Look at all the things we take for granted. It's millions of leeches from a primitive country come here to leech off you. I don't know what happened tonight, and I don't know why. Also, the gay agenda and Harry Potter. Professors, the 101 most dangerous academics in America, and that's just a short list of the uh, 30, 40,000 of them. They're like termites that have worked into the woodwork of our uh, academic society, and it just, appall it's appalling. Scapegoat. And, uh, and the hope is that, that by deflecting the anger of people, which might be directed against the system itself, deflecting the anger against... Absolutely. One of the things that I, I can't help but notice is the fact that a lot of times when people are angry at a specific group of people, they're not actually upset with the group of people. They're upset with the systems in which affect them and they're misdirecting their their hate and their 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 opinion um, because usually their opinion is, is too generalized. Um, I actually meant to make a, or actually I plan to, not mean to, I, I plan to make a video in regards to that in response to a woman who said something a little bit foul on uh, TikTok uh, not too long ago, but um, yeah, I can't, can't help but notice that. These other people, uh, the system would save itself in, uh, in the South, they black people became scapegoats and you directed the anger of white people poor white people in the south were the people who joined the ku klux klan these poor white people might have rebelled against the governments of the south and against the national government but no they were told that black people were the source of their problem They were told and they believed that black people were a source of their problem. 
they were told and they believed. Please, emphasis on were told and believed. July 18th, 1984, San Diego, California. This looks like uh, a news report um, in association with the situation that happened in California, San Diego, California. Uh, July 18th, during the summer, of course, 1984. Entered a facility, heavily armed, immediately started shooting everybody. Mm. It was a local man dressed in battle fatigues who declared, I've killed a thousand, I'm going to kill a thousand more. 41-year-old James Huberty reportedly walked into the restaurant carrying a semi-automatic rifle and two other weapons, enough ammunition to last two hours. Witnesses inside said he fired wildly into the unsuspecting crowd, gathered for a quick evening meal. He fired through windows, hitting people in the street. He fired at men, women, children, and babies. Bullets fly, leaving a local family scared to be in their own home. Tonight, investigators say hate was driving the man who pulled the trigger. Deputies say last month, someone opened fire on the Hashems because they're Muslim. And I need to know who hates us that much, who's, you know, who, who wants us to, to, to die. Authorities in California are urging Jewish schools and temples to stay alert following a shooting at a synagogue in L.A. The attack happened in the same area of Bushwick where another has... Hispanic immigrant was killed. Vera left a food pantry here at his church in Lower Manhattan, carrying his groceries. He biked across the Williamsburg Bridge and into Bushwick, where police say he was allegedly struck in the head, then thrown off his bike as three black males yelled anti-Mexican slurs. On the left-hand side of your screen, you can see the two attackers shove and punch Jack Price, the openly gay victim now in a medically induced coma. The attack accelerates with both suspects flailing their arms at the helpless 49-year-old. There was utter pandemonium outside the university building as ambulances carted away the injured. Police have now confirmed 14 students dead, all women. Another dozen people were hurt, caught in a rampage that witnesses called a human hunt, with the gunman yelling, I want women. There's an interesting perspective that comes out of many studies in psychiatric anthropology, which suggests that uh, mental illness is not just a standardized, uh, invarying thing like, like diabetes. For example, diabetes is always the same wherever you are in the world. But uh, mental illness seems to take different forms. Once a person takes leave of reality, once a person abandons the ship of fools, the... Uh, the form that the psychosis takes is often <clears throat> dictated or at least shaped by the dominant culture. Uh, thus, for example, in uh, traditional Ojibwe society where there was a belief that, that once a person went insane, this is the Wendigo psychosis, that uh, he or she might eat human flesh. And thus a proportion of people who, feeling that they've left reality, uh, no longer feeling control, begin to act out the particular form of psychosis that their culture is aware of. Multiple murderers tend to differ from the conventional single murderers. The, uh, the ordinary murderer is very uniform everywhere in the industrial world. He's uh, 
very much a bottom of the working class figure. He's addicted to drugs or alcohol. He has no education or professional qualifications. This is the sort of person who, in a fit of rage, kills a friend or a lover. Multiple murders are a little different. Uh, they tend to be more edging towards the middle class in their origins and in their aspirations. And a, a part of the, their agenda, of their motivation, is, is that uh, they devoutly wish to join a higher class but come to feel excluded. In the case of James Huberty, the mass murderer who killed more than a dozen people in that long siege at the McDonald's in San Diego, uh, Huberty used to stare from his uh, apartment across the street at McDonald's, which was filled with uh, Mexican immigrants who were seizing control of the, the, this fundamental institution he thought of. Those Mexican immigrants didn't deserve that. And Mexican people in general don't deserve to be treated like that, specifically because they're Mexican. That is absolute lunacy. Um, no one deserves any type of treatment like that. It's disgusting, it's ridiculous, it's uncalled for, it's unnecessary. And... Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's misguided and mistreated hate and anger and, and absolute energy that could be, energy that in my opinion could be used for something a hell of a lot more productive than something as barbaric and futile as taking someone's life. Silly. society who were able to go there and afford to eat when he couldn't. I tried to argue in a succession of books that these kinds of killers, while their acts are deranged and insane, what they, they themselves are not necessarily so. Rather, they are alienated individuals who wish to end their life in a way that allows them to release their grudge against society for their perceived exclusions. Multiple killers may be statistically rare, but I've tried to argue that they represent central cultural themes. They embody many of the main ideas in, in, in their culture, uh, not only the glorification of violence and manly vengeance, but worldly success and worldly ambition, which uh, they feel they've been foiled in. So they're a prime embodiment of their civilization, not a twisted derangement of it. I've also tried to argue that this fundamentally rebellious rather than revolutionary cast to what they're doing ghastly killings they perpetrate uh, are relatively ignored by uh, government institutions charged with regulating society. Uh, they typically pay much more attention to political, real political dangers and spend much less time and energy and money monitoring uh, this small group of killers. Now, I don't believe personally that the answer to psychopathy is to be found in brain-altering chemicals to change the nature of our society in that artificial way. I think what we ought to start t t doing is teaching people about the dignity and value and the sacredness of human life and teaching people how to behave towards one another. The important thing to understand, however, is while it's interesting to look in, into the nature of modern society and see its fissures and fractures and stresses through uh, multiple murderers, it should not be considered that these are the primary killers. Governments and politicians are the main killers 
Indeed, some some uh, scholars have argued that the state's primary function is as a mass murderer to wage war on other states. And that was how they developed. That's the, the uh, social impetus for uh, the development of the modern state. So it's kind of disturbing. We don't think of the state in that way, but that's what it is. Hitler and Stalin, between them, killed something like 100 more than 100 million peoples, many of them their own peoples. Uh, this small-time personal, personalized vengeance of a few serial killers and mass killers comes to nothing compared to, to them. The real killers are governments. Nowhere is frustration and aggression more apparent than in modern-day military training. In her study of Japanese atrocities in China, Iris Chang observed that Japanese troops were subjected to particularly severe abuse prior to their deployment. They were repeatedly slapped for no reason, humiliated in front of their peers, and reduced to a state of impotent rage. It was generally at this point that they would be given a bayonet and instructed to attack the enemy, who was portrayed as a subhuman animal. In America, the same techniques would be adopted, with the emphasis less on physical abuse than verbal. of the time or I mean humble you know we used to probably wash our same clothes two or three times a week because that's basically pretty much what we had I wanted people to see that you know this is where I come from and look at me now I'm I'm a marine I come from the poor side of, of town you know so anybody else could make it as well you know, some type of motivation for my little brothers and my little cousins something they, they could look forward to light them all up come on fire This is a video that has definitely gone viral um, of a very senseless killing uh, in Baghdad in 2007. Um, for those of you who are listening, I'm pretty sure you know that we were at war with Iraq back in 2007 during the Bush administration, and a lot of really not-so-nice stuff happened uh, during that time. Frustration aggression is one of the most effective ways of managing a population. 
by directing a person's rage against selected minorities or outside enemies, the true cause of an individual's frustration can be effectively diverted. Yet in many ways, the theory is a symptom of something deeper. In order to engender real hatred against a particular group, that group must first be feared, and it is in the realm of fear that behaviorism made its most disturbing contribution. called a neo-behaviorist and he trained at the Yale Institute of Human Behavior and he was quite unusual. I think his background was unusual and he was also an unusually perceptive and sensitive man and one of the first and most significant um, experiments he did was called a preparatory set in which he had um, a, a human being lie down or and one of the first and most significant um, experiments he did was called a preparatory set in which he had um, a a human being lie down, or usually it was a student, lie down and be attached to electrodes that would deliver a shock whenever a light um, went on. And then so he would shine the light and then shock the student. And at that point, several people elected to discontinue the experiment. But those who persisted, he would then vary the experiment by showing the light and then not shocking them, or showing the light and shocking them. He would sort of uh, make it unpredictable. And he discovered that people's state of anxiety and uh, fear actually increased when the shock didn't come, when they were just waiting for a shock to come, or when they didn't know if a shock would ever come. And he said it actually created a, an atmosphere of pervasive fear and uh, and anxiety and even called it dread or terror. We have to remind ourselves that we are facing an enemy that is planning all over this world and it turns out planning inside our country to come here and kill us. And he said that that atmosphere could be ratcheted up progressively the more the experiment continued and the more um, unpredictable the shocks were so that after a while that when the shock came the pain actually was experienced as relief and almost pleasure by the subject. He called it a nervous breakdown, or what he described in another part of the article as the ultimate demoralization of behavior. What he extracted from this experiment was the idea that there was such a thing as a coercive stimulus that could actually be used to create an environment of dread or terror or anxiety from a low to a high level, and that the scientists could actually, it was almost as if they were turning the volume on a stereo. They could um, decide how much of that atmosphere, how intense they would like it to be. Needless to say, a creature in a highly fearful environment will be eager to escape to a new environment. This includes human beings. Maurer suggested that new behavior patterns could be quickly created through his techniques. The prospect of creating new behavior patterns quickly and efficiently became an obsession during the Cold War, when the Central Intelligence Agency assumed dominance in the field of mind control experimentation. security state would take the logic of power to its logical conclusion. 
known under the umbrella name MKUltra. Mind control experimentation by the CIA would abandon any pretense to morality, leading to a nightmarish search for the holy grail of social engineering, a fully controlled, fully obedient human being. The nature of the universe is such that ends can never justify the means. On the contrary, the means always determines the end. And this is a quote by Addicts Hustling. It's <laughs> probably saying that wrong. I apologize. Secrets of the Dead, as World War II winds down, the Allies race to capture Hitler's best scientists and technology. The Black Book had names, targets, places, people. The most important were the scientists, the German scientists. Searching for rockets, planes, nuclear bombs, and the masterminds behind them. Each side wants the advantage for the looming Cold War. The hunt for Nazi scientists, next on Secrets of the Dead. The majority of media on the subject of Project Paperclip has centered on German rocket scientists recruited by the United States to prevent the Soviet Union from establishing military supremacy. Hollywood has dealt with the topic in much the same way, often adding humor to the equation. I, for one, do not intend to go to sleep by the light of a communist moon. Now, we will be in full control of this pod. It will go up like a cannonball. And to come down like uh, a cannonball, uh, splashing down in the water of the ocean with a parachute to spare the life of the spacemen inside. Space. space <laughs> you don't want to kill the guy inside, of course. Wow. Well, one kind of specimen. <laughs> a tough one. <laughs> Not a bitch. <laughs> Dear God. I had in mind the gym. Gym? Well, what the hell is a gym? Chimpanzees, Senator, an ape, huh? The first American into space is not going to be a chimpanzee. Seldom discussed with equal candor is the recruitment of Nazi scientists who specialized in human experimentation. Among them were Kurt Blum, who tested sarin nerve gas on prisoners at Auschwitz, oh, and Hermann Becker Freising, who conducted fatal experiments at Dachau. The American people got hold of X number of German scientists, but they immediately ran into a problem. Many of these scientists were classified as war criminals because of their activities during the war, and therefore were not eligible for State Department visas and could not be brought into the United States. So what the CIA did was create uh, several of these different programs, including Paperclip, and their purpose was to, number one, recruit these scientists, and then number two, bring them into the U.S while routing them around the State Department visa requirements. A well-known doctor who came in under paperclip was Dr. Albertus Strughold, who did experiments during the Second World War that were full Nazi atrocity-type experiments. For instance, they were interested in the effects of high altitude on human beings, so they built a special chamber. They would put a gypsy or homosexual or a Jew or whoever it might be into the chamber what the fuck? Man. See. It suddenly dropped the pressure down to the equivalent of 60,000 feet. Wow. Uh, this obviously was excruciating and caused the person to die. 
and then they would take the guy out of the chamber, dunk his head underwater, and cut his skull open underwater to see what if there the? was air bubbles coming out of the arteries in his brain. What? And so yeah, they did dozens and dozens of experiments of this kind. That's that's not an experiment. That is torture. I don't I don't I don't care. That is torture. That is not an experiment. That is murder. That's torture. That's inhumane and that's disgusting. So this guy was brought over under paperclip became the father of aviation medicine in the United States, uh, worked at an Air Force base in uh, San Antonio. Oh, wow. The father of aviation? How the fuck? Okay. How? How do you do something like that to someone and then you turn around and an entire state gives you like a fucking handshake and a pat on the back? That's... See, this, this, <laughs> this is my issue with places like America, right here. This is it. This is my issue. <sighs> Amongst other locations. Has a library named after at one of the Air Force bases in San Antonio. Why does this man have a library named after him after doing such ridiculously heinous things to people? What? on earth makes a person like this eligible to have a library named after them i could have swore when you get a library named after you that meant that you did something of some significance not torturing and murdering someone that's that that's fucking disgusting antonio and the texas state legislature declared an alberta strukel day in honor of him uh, back in the 70s man whether Nazi scientists participated in experiments on Americans after their recruitment by American intelligence remains unknown. What is known is that such experiments became a matter of routine. That's scary. Experiments like that became routine? That's, that's fucking scary. Okay, now we're looking at the fucking Pentagon. Okay, this, this, this feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Some of the studies were relatively harmless, if unethical. In 19- Oh, relatively harmless, you say? What does that mean? What do you mean? <laughs> Explain to Elmo. Explain. In 1966, the U.S. Army Special Operations Division dispensed a non-toxic basilisk to the New York City subway system by way of cracked light bulbs. Other experiments were not so harmless. Oh, you don't say. I can imagine. I can imagine that they didn't have... Oh, God. Y'all, I'm, I'm trying to be quiet because if I say anything, I'm not going to have nothing nice to say. So I'm just sitting here and I'm going to listen with the rest of y'all. Because this is fucking barbaric. Oh. Nuclear bomb? Okay. <laughs> what the fuck?
Okay, so I'll be honest. This is starting to irritate the absolute fuck out of me. Um, so we're going to go about another 10 minutes. And I, uh, I'm i going to switch gears um, and probably get into an article um, in relationship to this and read that off. Either an article or an interview. We'll see what happens. And thank you so much if you decided to listen to me and learn this information today. I really appreciate any and everyone's attendance. Let's get it. Alright. 1946, the University of Rochester researchers injected human... Oh, injected human uh, subjects with uh, uranium in order to study how much they could they could tolerate before their kidneys became damaged. Nineteen forty nine mentally retarded children at the federal at the Findale School in Massachusetts are given radioactive oatmeal in order to test the effects of radioactive material on the human body. Nineteen fifty, the U.S. Navy secretly sprayed a cloud of bacteria over San Francisco. What was that? That bacteria? What was it for? What was the purpose? For what reason? I probably didn't have a good enough reason. Um. The Navy later claims that the experiment was harmless, but many residents became ill with severe infections, leading to at least one death. In 1950, the U.S. Army released a toxic chemical called zinc, uh, zinc camel, zinc catamel sulfite over Minneapolis, over, and other cities. I guess other cities in Minneapolis. High rates of infant mortality. <clears throat> High rates of infant mortality and cancer occurred in the different cities that they sprayed in. Uh, army physicians studied children. Studied. Army physicians studied children at local schools, noting the health effects. In 1953, the Atomic Energy Commission sponsored iodine studies at the University of Iowa. 
pregnant women are given 100 to 200 micro doses of iodine, 131, uh, 131 to detrimine at what stage radioactive iodine crosses the placenta barrier. This is wow. Okay. The aborted fetuses are later studied. 1955, the CIA conducted a bio-warfare bio test where bacteria is released in the Tampa Bay area. A sharp rise in whooping cough cases resulted in causing results causing 12 deaths. Details of the experiment remain classified. It's 2022. What the fuck? Maybe The 1956, the U.S. military released mosquitoes infected with yellow fever over poor communities in, in Santa Fe, Georgia, and uh, Avon Park, Florida. Results included stillbirths, endometriosis, thyroid, thyroid problems, and several deaths. Following each, each test, army agents posted, posing as public health officials, tested victims for effects. In 1957, Operation Plum Bomb, the U.S. military detonates 29 nuclear bombs at the Nevada test site northwest of Los Angeles. As an estimated 32,000 cases of cancer occurring among American civilians due to the experiments, no one was warned. Now it looks like these people are radioactive. It was in this environment that U.S. mind control experimentation came into being. At the end of the war, the OSS was disbanded, and the same personnel really came together and formed the CIA in 1947. And the first documented CIA mind control programs are Bluebird and Artichoke. Bluebird was signed into operation by the director of the CIA in April of 1950, which is three months before the start of the Korean War. So all... All right, ladies and gentlemen, so we've got about 30 more minutes to go, and we should be finished with this documentary. If you decided to stay with me up until now, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Um, yeah, but we should be done here pretty soon with this particular section. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello, and we're back. <laughs> 
thank you so much for tuning back in. This is uh, Frequency Bay with Madam Butterfly, me, uh, and we're getting into the last 30 minutes of this wonderful, <laughs> uh, very truthful um, documentary in regards to social engineering in the 20th century. All right, so we are currently listening to a uh, interview portion of the documentary where a man is um, speaking to... Claims that uh, CIA and U.S. interest in mind control was purely reactive, purely defensive, and only in reaction to what the communist Chinese were doing to downed pilots during the Korean War. All of that is not true disinformation, clearly disproven by the documents. Artichoke and Bluebird uh, started in 1950, ran into the mid-50s, kind of overlapped with and were rolled into MKUltra, which ran until 1963. MKUltra in turn was rolled over into MK Search, which ran to the early 70s. And in the 50s, 60s, there's a variety of other programs, MK Naomi, MK Delta, QK Hilltop, Project Often. So there's a whole set of these projects. And the documentation basically stops in 1973. All programs since then are still classified. Of particular interest were Nazi research papers by Dr. Kurt Plautner from Dachau concentration camp. Plautner had found that prisoners, when given high doses of mescaline, openly expressed hatred of their captors while also exhibiting an increased willingness to speak frankly about their own lives. The dream of MKUltra was to come up with drugs that on the one hand would be sort of an ultimate truth serum that you could give it to a person and they would tell you the truth about anything that you wanted to hear. And then on the other hand, there would also be some way to wipe a person's mind clean. Heading up the CIA's psychochemical experiments would be Sidney Gottlieb. In 1960, when the agency plotted the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, leftist president of the Congo, it was Gottlieb who personally carried the poison to the agency's chief of station via diplomatic pouch. A 1953 memo from Gottlieb states that MKUltra Subproject 6 is designed to develop a reliable source of lysergic acid derivatives within the U.S. The problem of supply was solved in October 1954, when Eli Lilly and company, now known for manufacturing Prozac, succeeded in synthesizing LSD. This pill can solve all of your problems. It's called Prozac, and it may mean the end of depression as we know it. A special memorandum was rushed to CIA Director Alan Dulles on October 26th, and an unlimited supply of the drug was now available to be purchased by, and in some cases used against, the American taxpayer. As with the behaviorists, they started with animals. Here, we see millions of years of evolution turned upside down when a cat is given LSD. Soldiers came next. Hmm. One of 
the first major studies was conducted at the Edgewood Chemical Facility in Maryland, where approximately 7,000 U.S. soldiers served as unwitting guinea pigs. They were given drugs such as LSD, mescaline, BZ, and PCP, then instructed to perform various tasks. Looking back at early behaviorist experiments, the analogies were obvious. Under the CIA and the Pentagon, what was good enough for rats was good enough for the U.S. Armed Forces. Wow. More than 1,000 of the soldiers emerged with mental health problems. Some attempted suicide. No compensation was offered. <laughs> wow. In and with the full approval of the National Institute of Health, Gottlieb arranged wow. funding for a project at the Addiction Research Center in Lexington. Heroin addicts, mainly young black men, were kept on LSD for an incredible 77 days, a feat described wow. by the center's director, Harris Isbell, as the most amazing demonstration of drug tolerance I have ever seen. But they would not stop there. Segment three this evening is titled The Children and the CIA. We've learned a lot of unknown activities of the CIA in years past, some of them disturbing, to say the least. Tonight, we'll learn of the agency's interest in children. Paul Altmaier of our investigative unit has assembled these facts. These are home movies taken in the 1950s at a European camp of the Children's International Summer Village, a program designed to bring together children from around the world for a better understanding of one another. NBC News has learned that the CIA was studying these youngsters, some as young as 11, as possible future recruits. The studies took place at summer camps in Hennefest, Norway and Vienna, Austria in 1959 and 1960. According to CIA documents we have examined, this was sub-project 103 of the agency's top secret MK Ultra program. San Antonio, Texas. NBC News has also learned that the CIA paid for a study of adolescents here and in two other Texas cities, Austin and El Paso, in 1958 and 1959. It was a study of how youngsters behave without adult supervision. This study, MKUltra Subproject 102, refers to data being collected on 462 subjects in seven secondary schools. No child is identified by name. revered child psychiatrist in the entire 20th century of American psychiatry was Dr. Loretta Bender. She had a full-page obituary in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and that only happens occasionally. You have to be really a high-ranking person to have a full-page obituary. And she's famous for the Bender and Gestalt test, which is a widely used psychological test. So not everybody in the mental health field knows exactly who she is, but all psychology graduate students have heard of the Bender Gestalt. And she was a child psychiatrist charged with the care and treatment of children. And she operated at Creedmoor State Hospital in New York in the uh, 60s. Her funding source is not stated in her papers. So where she got the LSD from and whether she was directly funded by the military or the CIA is not documented. But she uh, attended many CIA-sponsored LSD symposia, uh, talked with, was on panels with, interacted with, most of the leading CIA and military LSD contractors. 
So I would say it's unbelievable that she didn't know that all of this was basically run by the CIA and the military. And what she did, again, is not the bad scientist hidden in the basement somewhere. These are papers in leading psychiatry journals where she, as the author, describes children as young as five getting LSD, uh, mescaline, psilocybin, other hallucinogens in street-level type doses for days, weeks, months, and in some cases, years at a time. Under the rationale that somehow this was going to be helpful treatment. Again, no real follow-up. How many of these kids went psychotic? How did it affect their chromosomes? What was with their mental health from there on? So this is the kind of experimentation that you would think would be impossible. It would never happen. Somebody who claimed that would just be need of treatment themselves. But not only is it documented, it was published in the literature and nobody seemed to be upset, nobody complained to the American Psychiatric Association, nobody reported her to anybody. It was just business as usual. The use of children in barbaric mind control experiments shows an evolution from the early behaviorists to the CIA mind doctors. Once the doctrine of national security had been invoked, ethical considerations received little or no attention. Almost anything could be justified by claiming the communists might be engaged in similar activities. You've got to be able to take it. Your body's got to be able to take it. Because service means new physical demands on strength and endurance. During the Korean War, in 1953, during the cessation of the war, American soldiers were returned home who had been prisoners of war in China. They started exhibiting very strange behavior. When the boat neared the shore, they were not very happy to come home. Even the, you know, the sight of their mother's outstretched arms seemingly failed to move them. They were sort of stone-faced. They would start spouting communist propaganda. Some of them had seemed to have been converted to communism, and even 21 Air Force personnel had been persuaded to stay in Korea and you know, start families there. My name is Harold Webb from Wisconsin, Florida. My name is Aaron Wilson from Urania, Louisiana. This is a very happy moment for me, and now I am free. In smaller or large ways, they had collaborated or cooperated or allowed themselves to be coerced Ooh. by the enemy. Many sociologists and psychiatrists and psychologists who both worked for the army or worked for um, institutions like universities were brought together in teams to study why this was happening. And one of the people who headed one of the teams was named Louis Jollyon West. And he was a talented American psychiatrist who was working for the army and he headed a team uh, that studied the returned soldiers from the, what was called Operation Little Switch. And these soldiers were displaying some of that behavior. And so they were trying to figure out what exactly had happened. They concluded that it was nothing that this, if it was brainwashing, it was not the typical kind of notion of what people think brainwashing is, which is some magical hocus pocus where the person loses their mind. and like changing the software on a computer. One day they're good old-fashioned Americans and the next day they're these kind of rabid communists. But instead they were describing a process that much more resembled um, slow, steady, classical behavioral conditioning. So they came up with the words DDD for debility, dependency, and dread. Debility was 
basically that they'd been put in a situation where their their um, wounds weren't treated and their health was low and they weren't fed very well so they kind of developed a chronic debility and sometimes they developed a condition that other soldiers called give up itis where they would just simply lie down and refuse to take food and water and and just die and the second was dependency that they were um, these soldiers were made to be extremely dependent on their captors for any kind of reward or any kind of even anything resembling a small comfort or luxury or even just food to keep them alive they were they were dependent on their captors so that created an ex in a way a kind of intimate bond and then the third d was for dread which was an atmosphere of fear and terror and constant um, unpredictability where the prisoner would never be sure what was going to happen next it, you know they could be kept awake for 48 hours or a week they could be given a drug or not they could be given food or not they never knew when that would be coming and they never knew if their captors would be treating them decently god this is so dark <laughs> this is this is so this is so dark um or not so there was an atmosphere of this kind of extreme unpredictability and all of that together was what they called ddd which they were said could basically be um, explained through behavioral principles and what it resulted in was a dismantling of the self or a demoralization of you know to go back to mauer's idea it's the ultimate demoralization of behavior while the purpose of the study was to find out about communist brainwashing techniques, CIA documents show that the agency was interested in developing mind control methods of its own. Jolly West would eventually achieve celebrity status in conspiracy culture for becoming the first, and one can only hope, the last man to kill an elephant by way of LSD. The elephant's name was Tusco. He resided at the Oklahoma City Zoo and died after a cartridge containing 3,000 times the accepted human dose of LSD was fired into his rump. West also served as a defense witness in the trial of Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped by the self-proclaimed Symbionese Liberation Army and brainwashed into robbing banks. There's some feeling among experts, and particularly her family, that Patricia Hurst was brainwashed by the Symbionese Liberation Army. One thing cited to substantiate that is that two known SLA members, including the slain leader Donald DeFries, were inmates at a California prison where sophisticated methods of mind control are practiced on some prisoners. And drugs are a vital part of therapy here. Everything from sleeping pills to prolixin a heavy tranquilizer used to control schizophrenics. What concerns the critics of prison therapy, however, is the danger that the tools of modern psychiatry can also be applied to a captive prison population for convenience instead of treatment. Not to make sick inmates better, but simply to make them behave. In his 1973 State of the State message, then-Governor of California, Ronald Reagan, announced plans for the establishment of a biomedical facility at Vacaville. 
It would be called the Center for the Study of the Reduction of Violence and would use techniques pioneered by Jose Delgado. Delgado had gained worldwide fame for stopping a charging bull in its tracks by using a gadget he called a stimulusiever, a remote control device that triggered electric impulses in the animal's brain. Neurophysicist Dr. Jose Delgado was financed by the Office of Naval Research. stop as it approached you when you pushed the right button. Uh, scientists always should have faith in science. I have faith in science. Recently released. Were you sure that that bill was going to stop as it approached you when you pushed the right button? Uh, scientists always should have faith in science. I have faith in science. Recently released CIA documents refer to the feasibility of remote control of... I don't like that answer. Animals and that special investigations will be conducted toward the application of selected elements of these techniques to man. In uh, Delgado's papers, he's basically implanting electrodes in the brains of human beings and experimental animals. In one of these papers, he refers to the animals as mechanical toys. In the Harvard team, there's pictures of... Oh, what... documentary is difficult enough. A 16-year-old girl. In one picture, she's staring off to, into nowhere with a bland, empty expression on her face. In another picture, she's strumming on her guitar. In another picture, she's furiously pounding on the wall. All totally controlled by which button is pushed in the neurotransmitter box. When you open somebody's brain like this and you put an electrode in and you keep it in for a long period of time, you're exposing that person to the risk of brain infections, meningitis, seizures, and death. For prison officials at Vacaville, the idea of controlling inmates through remote control was a tempting prospect, and drafting the outlines... Why? How? Why? Who? Why? of the new program was none other than Jolly West. West's proposal recommended psychosurgery as a tool for controlling prison populations and crime. Remarkably, he also recommended using schools in Chicano and African-American neighborhoods to screen for possible, quote, genetic defects. The project... <laughs> oh my God. Oh... was terminated, but only after public outrage forced officials to backtrack. Oh, I'm sure it did. West's research would lead to new dreams of what he called the psychophysiology of conditioning. West noticed that DDD bore an interesting resemblance to post-lobotomy syndrome, as well as altered states of consciousness produced by certain drugs, hypnosis, forced officials to backtrack. 
Quest's research would lead to new dreams of what he called the psychophysiology of conditioning. West noticed that DDD bore an interesting resemblance to post-lobotomy syndrome, as well as altered states of consciousness produced by certain drugs, hypnosis, and mental diseases like schizophrenia. In all of these cases, the notion of self, of free will, is deplaced by something more obscure. In West's words, the patient loses all recollection of the fact that he formerly possessed a space-time image, which served to explain the events of the day to him. With these ideas in mind, large funds were poured into the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, headed by Scottish-born psychiatrist Ewan Cameron. A future president of the World Psychiatric Association, Cameron set out to actualize the new vision of total control. He would create real-life blank slates out of his patients by wiping their minds clean Yo. and destroying their very notions of self. Yo. From there, new behavior patterns could conceivably be built upon the wreckage of their former identities. <laughs> Yo, the you wildin'. At the time was probably the leading academic center of psychiatry in Canada. Wow. University. And the chairman of McGill University, this is, we're in the uh, 50s into the 60s now, was Yo. Dr. Ewan Cameron, originally born in Scotland. Immigrated to Canada, and you he had money from the CIA fucking... under MKUltra to do two basic things: a kind of brainwashing, in which he uh, would, for many months in a row, administer massive, massive amounts of electric shock to a person. I know you fucking lie. I know you are fucking. <sighs> Linda McDonald, she got uh, over a hundred electroshock treatments in a period of four or five months. Each time, the button was pushed six times instead of once. So the electricity delivered to her brain was over 600 normal electroshock treatments. Uh, also, people would get prolonged uh, sleep induced by barbiturates, tranquilizers, uh, antipsychotics, and so on. So this is the depatterning. And what would happen from this massive shock and drug-induced uh, kind of sleep is what happened to Linda McDonald. She went into the hospital in the spring, slightly depressed, otherwise perfectly normal, functioning, intact person with five kids. By August, she was incontinent of urine and feces, unable to feed herself, didn't know her name, didn't know where she was, didn't know what year it was, didn't recognize her husband, and didn't recognize her children. So it's a complete wiping clean of the brain. They shipped me up to what they called the sleep room. And they gave me all of these electroconvulsive shock treatments and mega doses of drugs and LSD and all of that. And I have no memory of any of that. N nothing in the, in, of, of that time in the Allen Memorial or, or any of my life previous to that. All gone. So chances are the situation was so traumatizing that her brain is trying to protect her from what actually happened. Y'all, we got we got a good a good ten minutes of this shit left. I swear to God. Okay. Wiped. When she was released, she had to very laboriously learn how to play guitar, how to boil an egg, how to keep track of her kids, and this was the purpose of the experimentation. And obviously, the CIA was interested in this only for one purpose, which is 
If they had somebody and they wanted to wipe out their memories, would this method work? And you and Cameron proved that it could. Building up the new identity was uh, called psychic driving. And one of the techniques was they played either in you and Cameron's voice, one of the other doctor's voices, or in the person's own voice. They play these tape loops literally tens of thousands of times over and over and over and over, delivering whatever message it was they wanted the person to believe. <laughs> information cover stories about all of this is well first of all it never happened but then when it comes to light and there's lawsuits and publicity then the, the next level of cover story is well that was back then that was a different time different standards applied we wouldn't do that today but actually in fact all the ethical standards of 2010 applied absolutely at the end of the second world war and applied back in ancient Rome and Greece they were clearly unethical, immoral, destructive, unprofessional, harmful to, to the brains and to the lives of the subjects. In uh, some of the experiments, uh, not the ones at McGill, but other ones, as reported by the doctors in papers in psychiatric journals, <clears throat> in some of the experiments, people died. In other experiments, they went psychotic. Yeah. They were then treated with shock therapy. So long-lasting psychotic reactions worsening of symptoms, creation of new symptoms, and in some cases death, are described by the doctors in their own papers where they're discussing the research. But during the Cold War, uh, and this is up until the early 70s when the documentation stops and everything is classified, there was extensive, systematic, pervasive, structured contracting by the leading figures of psychiatry and the leading medical schools with the CIA at the top secret clearance level. The typical universities on the list would include Cornell, Harvard, Yale, Tulane, UCLA, the University of Minnesota, hmm. Denver University, and so on. So it was not just some mad scientist in a basement somewhere. Therapeutically speaking, the experiments of the MK Ultra psychiatrists were a complete failure. Yet, they were useful in at least one respect. The manual is called Kubark. Dated 1963, it is a how-to guide compiled by the CIA for interrogating suspects. In other words, a torture manual. Referring explicitly to early behaviorist experiments, as well as Cameron's studies at McGill, it describes a phenomenon whereby the deprivation of stimuli induces regression by depriving the subject's mind of contact with an outer world and thus forcing it upon itself. As the interrogate slips back from maturity toward a more infantile state, 
his learned or structured personality traits fall away. deprivation and electroshock. The manuals that they wrote, which were based on the earlier behavioral experiments, were directly adopted during the war on terror. What happened was during the 70s and 80s, these manuals had spread in Latin America and other places for use in counterinsurgency movements, and these techniques had never really gone out of favor. So if you look at Guantanamo Bay, as of... Um, you know, five years into the war, there had been 10 to 20,000 interrogations that took place there. So it's, you know, you hear about the extreme interrogations, but what was really going on was a kind of routinization of the process of interrogating people and creating these environments in which they never knew if it was day or night, if it was going to be cold or hot, if they would be subjected to um, loud music or terrible, you know, babies crying or Sesame Street, or that it was a completely unpredictable environment that created an atmosphere of stability, dread, and dependency. And then that also is, is linked to the importing of people called behavioral science consultants or biscuits, who were often anthropologists or psychologists who would come and kind of oversee and monitor these interrogations. Many decades later, the U.S. government's mind control projects retain an aura of mystery. Former CIA director Richard Helms claims to have shredded most of the remaining documentation. Yet Miles Copeland, a former CIA officer, claims the congressional subcommittee which went into this got only the barest glimpse of the U.S. government's attempt to control the human mind. Whatever the case, Exotic mind control techniques would not be required for the ultimate goal of controlling the opinions and behavior of the American public. The answer would come in the form of a small, flickering box. The behaviorist Ivan Pavlov was the first scientist to explain why moving images are so attractive to human beings. We instinctively react to any sudden or novel visual stimuli because of our biological orienting system. In evolutionary terms, this was and is necessary both for exploration of our environment and for defense against potential predators. Television not only entertains the mind, it relaxes the body. This has been confirmed by EEG readings of viewers' brainwaves as they watch television programs and advertising. In the hands of skilled media professionals, moving images create an effect roughly akin to hypnosis producing passivity, a lowered level of alertness, and increased suggestibility. Some will get through to your home. 
Okay, so <laughs> I'm laughing because um, that is one of my uh, trigger responses when I watch something that is, watch something where I'm around something that's a bit uncomfortable, I usually laugh. It's like a nervous laugh that I have. But anyway, um, that is the documentary, documentary portion of um, this of the podcast episode today. Um, I think I'll follow this up with an interview and uh leave it we'll leave it off with a with an article. Uh thank you so much for tuning in. We shall continue. Alright, good people, I'm back. This is Madam Butterfly and you are tuned in to of course Frequency Bay. So we have finally got to the last round of our podcast episode today, and this one in particular is in regards to social constructionism. And in relationship to that, um, we're going to go over, actually listen in on rather, a TED Talk lecture called How Our Identities Are Socially Constructed. And let's see here, y'all know how much I love a good lecture on TED Talks, uh, call me cheap, but whatever. And it says, it says, um, about the conception, what identify, what identities are and how they are constructed, 10th grade student at, uh, Caliago, Angelo Colombiano, this TED Talk, this talk was given a TED Talk event using the the TED conference format, but independently organized by a local community, which is, it's fucking beautiful. Um, so yeah, let's get right into it. I think I've, I, uh, I think I've got one more after this, but, um, yeah, definitely, uh, relax and enjoy. And thank you so much for joining me. Identity must be one of the most controversial and delicate matters to discuss nowadays. As identity itself, Everyone has a different conception of it, a different attitude towards it. However, I've come to realize we all agree identity is of great importance and it rules our daily lives. Identity determines what I do. Identity determines how I react to the world. Identity determines how I see myself as, obviously, and identity determines how others see me. So if I tell you that I'm Colombian, for example, this small machinery inside your head starts working, and quite fast, really, in order to add to this mental document you have about me. She is Colombian. And it makes sense, right? Who I am and who I act as determines how others see me, identify me, and recognize me as a person, and don't confuse me with the one right next to me. But get this. I'm strongly convinced it works the other way around too. And what do I mean by this? That my actions, 
what I do, who I am, my identity is totally ruled, bounded, and limited by what others say. So if we go back to this resume you have about everyone you've ever met, it is totally fake news. And not fake news in the way that is lie, but rather more that they're not actually news at all. Because we are just receiving the message we send others about themselves. It's a vicious cycle of miscommunication. And I told you I was Colombian not long ago, right? Well, if we're going to be honest with each other, that's not entirely true. And before I answer the question most of you must be thinking about, where do I come from? I want to ask you first, is my answer going to change how you see me? Is my identity going to change because of what I'm, I'm going to answer? Am I going to change? I was born and I was raised in Chile and I lived a really long time in there too. I mean, long enough for a teenager anyways. And so I guess if you sum things up, I'm Chilean, right? I mean, you could call me Chilean. But what if we add to this equation also living, caring, and considering home another country? I personally believe the answer is not being a traitor or nothing like that. But I actually think it's my identity is changing. So, well, all my family friends, all my childhood friends, all my family, all the street names I remember, they all lead back to Chile. So what makes me so reluctant after so many years of calling myself Chilean? And you know, it's not because we're not going to the World Cup. I mean, kind of, yeah. No, no, <laughs> but real talk. I'm doubting after 15 years of not doing so in calling myself Chilean, because that would immediately invalidate the possibility of calling myself Colombian. And, you know, let me highlight that I'm not precisely saying that I want and feel ready to call myself Colombian, because I still think that I need to live so many years in here and learn so many things in order to do so. But Colombia is so a big part of my identity, it's a big part of who I am right now. And I still think that I have the right to call myself Colombian, but, well, although I still need to learn the national anthem, although I still need to learn how to dance, although I have to visit so many places in this beautiful country, and although I have to meet, have to live so many, so many other years in here, until that day comes, until that, until the day comes that people see me as Colombian, and until I see myself as Colombian, I will not call myself Chilean either because identity has become something exclusive, static, and something really similar to high school group project. And why I'm saying high school group project? Because you see, identity needs to be constructed with others. You cannot construct your identity by yourself. That's impossible. You need the help of others to construct your own identity. And in that case, identity is a group project. However, Nowadays, identity is not working like that. It's working like a high school group project because where everyone is supposed to collaborate, but almost no one does so. And you know, that's so sad, given that I believe identity 
is the complete opposite. Nothing about exclusiveness. Identity is all about unlimited options. The more things you have to say about yourself, the better. Nothing about static. Identity is all about change and being able to improve and progress. And nothing about a high school group project. Identity is more like an athletics team. And why specifically an athletics team? Let me first tell you a really short story that I know many athletes around the world are going to agree with me. One of the things we get asked the most as athletes is, why don't you like team sports? Are you so individualistic you don't like engaging with others? I once even got told that I like the glory of the victory for myself, and that's why I don't play football or volleyball or stuff like that. But you know, people are really wrong because athletics, it's all about teamwork. Because if it weren't when I've been running for over an hour and I am tired and I'm exhausted and I want to finish, if it weren't because of my teammates, I would have never pushed myself and I would have never improved. And because if it weren't because of my best friend, I would have never crossed the finish line so many times because he's shouting at me to push and to run faster. Chuck Palahniuk once wrote, nothing of me is original. I'm the combined effort of everyone I've ever known. Have you ever wondered how would you know some things about yourself if it weren't for others? How would you know you have a twitch in your mouth or you raise your eyebrows when you're surprised or that you get really excited when talking about that thing you like the most? For my part, I would have never known that I have, su that I have such a weird accent that sometimes it's really difficult to understand. But because I interact with others, I can know and I do. And you know, there's a really fun thing about identity, well, not really fun, but the thing is that as the say goes, you should know yourself better than everyone else, right? But have you ever met yourself as you have met others? I mean, yeah, you have seen pictures, videos, you have heard voice notes, you have taken a glance at the mirror, I can look at my feet and if I try really hard, the tip of my nose, but I've never met myself like I've met you, right? And that's the fun thing about identity, that you need to construct it with others. Now, um, well, there I have met a lot of people in the school that want themselves to call, they want to call themselves Colombian. However, they are restricted. They cannot call themselves Colombian because or their physical appearance, or maybe because they look, they have come from somewhere else, or because their family ties leads them from another place of the world. And that can't really happen because your identity is about you, right? And well, I've been thinking about it, and well, you have heard of eat, sleep, train, repeat. So now get ready for receive, accept, express, repeat. And what I've seen through others and what I think of myself, this is what the four steps of constructing your identity with others looks like. So first, you have received. You have to be open to the information that surrounds you. You have to pay attention about what others tell you and you have to pay attention about how you react to things because the smallest detail can tell you the biggest things about yourself. Second, accept. Once you have 
all of this information, you have to accept things. And by this, I do not mean that you have to accept everything everyone tells you. You have to accept that sometimes people are wrong and sometimes people are right. Accept that your mother knows you better than everyone else and accept that she's right by saying that you are a really lazy person. Or accept you are wrong and accept that your best friend is wrong by saying that you are a really proud person. Accept things. Third, express. Now you have all this information, you've deliberated, you know who you are, you have to express it. And this is the most important part. You have to show the world who you are. You have to react to the world who you are. You have to do the things that define who you are. See yourself as who you are and others will see you. Lastly, repeat. Because you can't expect to gain results if you go to the gym once a year, right? So it sounds like she's saying to make it a pattern, which is absolutely right. Because uh, practice makes permanent. All right, let's get back to it. We should. We got about less than a minute left, and then we'll get to the the next thing. Thanks so much for joining me. You're listening to Frequency Bay. The same things happen here. You have to repeat, repeat because practice makes perfect. Repeat because Rome wasn't built in a day. And now, before I finish, I want you to think one last time of my identity issue and not because I'm greedy or something like that. I want you to think of my identity issue because I believe it's the perfect metaphor to identity issues all around the world. Because it applies. Because when you're having an identity issue because of your career, your profession, gender, nationality, religion, culture, so many things, you have to deliberate. You first have to recognize there's a problem. Because if, if there isn't a problem, there's nothing to fix. And because if you don't recognize you're playing a game, you can't never win. Thank you very much. This is absolutely imperative information, life-changing even. This was really beautiful uh, lecture, in my opinion. She said so much without really saying much at all. Loved it. Columbia. <laughs> so what going to finish out with is um, one more lecture and this lecture is of a bit a, a lady who's a bit older uh, let's see here let's get more information Molly Bingaman. She has a passion for helping others. Might be a Virgo. Helping people see their true beauty. She founded Ladybird Styling in 2010 with the bold intent of changing the way people see themselves, their style, and their world through merging the language of design with elements from math and physics. Hell yeah. She 
math and physics, she she and her team of experts have created a radical new approach to styling with teachers, which teaches clients to choose their clothes, hairstyles, and makeup that best represent who they are. The Ladybird method has given hundreds of women the tools to show up authentically in their world, in their wardrobe, and in their and in their lives. Uh, it has been thoroughly tested. It works every time and it's completely teachable. Molly has a BA in the Fine Arts from West from Westmount College um, in Santa Barbara, uh, California and was trained by Stacy London of TLC's What's What to What Not to Wear. Alright, so let's get right into this because this sounds damn good. Everyone has style. The question is not whether or not you have it, but whether or not it's being expressed. I know this because I'm a personal stylist, and the kind of work that I do is transformational personal styling. So my team and I lead people through a process of transformation with their appearance. And sometimes when people hear this, they'll say, a stylist? Oh, what a fun job. That sounds so fun. You get to dress people up all day, spend other people's money. Oh, so fun. I say, yeah, it is. It's so fun. I'm really lucky. I think fun, really. Do you know many women? Have you been in a dressing room with a woman before? <laughs> There's a mirror in there. I'm going to ask her to strip in front of a stranger. Yeah. Brene Brown's research on shame reveals that body image and appearance are nearly universal shame triggers. And after a decade of doing this work, I can tell you that that's true. I also know that it's not just something women struggle with. It's also men. It doesn't go away with age. And that there are certain environments, relationships, and life cycles that trigger this. And I think the thing about uh, struggling with your appearance that's particularly painful is that our deepest desire is to be seen. We care about our appearance not because we're super vain or obsessed with our image, but because we want to connect and we want for people to see us. The tricky part is that in order to be seen, you have to first show up. So this is a client of mine. Her name is Joanne. And I met Joanne a couple of years ago when she was going through a transition. And so she had hired me for two reasons. Number one, she was going through a divorce. And she really wanted to focus on her appearance. This was something that she'd been ignoring for years, and she felt like this was the time to do it. And the second reason was that her daughter was getting married. And this was the first time her ex-husband and his new girlfriend were going to be there, too. And so when I asked Joanne, well, you know, how do you want to, how do you want to feel at this event? And she was like, um, amazing. I need to feel incredible. I need to feel confident. I need to walk in there and really just show that I am doing well. So we settled on smoking hot for this event. So I meet Joanne in her closet. I go in there and I'm like, oh crap. 
we're gonna have to start from scratch <laughs> there was just Uh-oh. nothing in there oh, man. there were like six things they were mostly black maybe one or two solid colors things that she literally had bought from Costco when she was doing errands that's how much she just wasn't thinking about this but the biggest thing was that none of the stuff hanging in her closet had anything to do with Joanne it all looked just not like her One of the first things that I felt from Joanne when I met her was she has this just really dynamic, vibrant quality about her. And I could see it in her uh, surroundings, how she had decorated her home. So there were interesting uh, things on the walls, colorful pillows, you know, just a lot of personality being expressed in her environment. And yet none of it was showing up in her look. And so I asked her about that. I was like, Joanne, like, I can see you here. Uh, but how come it's not coming through in your appearance? Because it comes from the same creative place. And she was like, I don't know. I just thought black was slimming. So here's a picture of Joanne uh, on our shopping trip together, looking smoking hot in a leopard print dress, and also what she decided to wear to her daughter's wedding. We all want to be seen, and we want to be seen as attractive. I don't know anybody who wants to be considered less attractive. The good news is that the most attractive look is always the most authentic one. Authenticity is universally attractive. Your size or your age or how much you're spending on your clothing, if you know anything about fashion or brands, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is that you show up authentically. When someone shows up authentically, you don't just see it, you also feel it. The signature of authenticity is resonance. What that means for styling is that you're trying to choose clothing that resonate with you. You're looking for a match and a sympathetic relationship between the clothing and the wearer. That's all it is. In order to figure this out, how you might do this for yourself, imagine that you are a member of an orchestra, and orchestras are arranged in four parts, different sections. The instruments are grouped by their like sounds, their like characteristics, and there's kind of a signature to these sounds. So in the first section, you have your woodwind instruments. These are things like the piccolo and the flute, and they have a certain quality to them. They're kind of that light, bright, melody bopping along. We know how they make us feel and we recognize them by their sound. Compare that to the second section, which is the string section. Their sound is totally different. These instruments make these long, sweeping, dramatic sounds. If you think of like the violin or the harp or the cello, they make us feel a different way. And we recognize these instruments by their sound. In your third section, it's the brass section. And that's where like your power instruments are. So it's things like the trumpet and the tuba and the trombone. And these are the loudest instruments. You can hear them from the furthest away and they make you feel a certain way. Whenever I hear a trumpet, I just feel like I can, you know, take on the world. They have a certain feeling to them. And then in your last section, it's the percussion section. And these are instruments like the bass drum and the timpani, and they keep the beat for the whole rest of the orchestra. And each instrument shows up and has a different sound. 
a different quality. And we are like that. You are like an instrument. You were made to play a certain kind of music. My uncle Morris used to be a professional singer. And he would often describe his voice as his instrument. And we would kind of laugh, you know, like, he, oh, no, he couldn't sing at church because he has to protect his instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this, it kind of works because he was using his voice to express the music inside him. That's what style is. That's what true personal style is when it's resonant, when it's authentic, when it's attractive. It's you showing up and expressing the specific kind of beat and rhythm of your life. You have a certain energy to you. You have a certain movement, a feeling. All of this is wrapped up in your identity, and it looks like something, and it feels like something to the people around you, just like an instrument. If you don't take care of your appearance and your style, it tends to fall out of tune. And this is really normal. It happens, you know, it can happen at different parts of your life. And it's really easy to fall out of tune because there's so many other people around you playing different notes. And it's very easy to kind of tune to them. So if you see someone over here and you're like, oh my gosh, their style is so cool and great. Like, and then you go and you try and you put that on and it's like, oh, well, that's not working for me. It's because it's not tuned to you. It's tuned to them. So you're wanting to find clothing that's in tune with you. In order to do this, I want to give you a key for finding your true personal style. It has a signature to it. The way that I like to talk about style is that it's just the way in which you do things. It's the way in which. It's not simply the result. It's not simply what shows up. It's how you get there. This kind of grid is going to help you tune into your signature style if you haven't found it before or to retune if you've gotten off track. And in order to understand your signature style, you need to understand the way you move. So like the orchestra, there are four different groups or parts of instruments or of style. And each person resonates more clearly, strongly with one of these groups. The things that look attractive and authentic on you has to do with which group you resonate with. And you're wanting to choose clothing that has that same quality or that likeness to it. So in the first group, you have what we would liken to the woodwind section. So these are people who are moving through their life. We're talking about like their inner movement. It's your inner beat or your rhythm for how you are expressing this energy inside of you. This group, it looks light. It looks bright. These are people who are full of fresh ideas. They, their energy moves toward what's new. So they're constantly um, wanting to switch things up in order to get variety so that they can keep their energy up. If this is you, don't let anybody shame you about wanting to shop or needing new things or needing change because this is how you actually get energy. And so the key here is to choose clothing that has that same kind of energy, that same kind of spirit to it. So it might be things like, you know, light bright colors or fabrics that are light and they move and there's a ton of animation. 
you want to match the spirit to your spirit. Compare that to the second group, the movement here, the natural rhythm of life in, with this group looks like this. These are your string instruments. They're moving slowly. They're moving more fluidly. Um, people in this corner need to take more time with things. The look is comfortable and relaxed. It's totally different from this first group. They make you feel welcomed. They have a patient quality about them. So the way that this expresses in their clothing, if this is you, you might be um, someone who has a lot of like really comfy things in your closet. So like a lot of knits, a lot of stuff that's just kind of slouchy because comfort is really key to you. This group of people also really has a hard time getting rid of things in their closet. So if you've held on to stuff from like high school, that might be a clue. <laughs> Compare that to the third corner. These people, again, totally different. Their vibe, their rhythm, their movement through life is this quick cutting pace. They move with purpose. They move to get things done. They're wired for efficiency. These are people who've done like 100 house projects during quarantine. I've done zero house projects, <laughs> but their energy is such that it's wired to accomplish things. It's on to the next thing. It feels substantial. Clothing that matches and resonates with them needs to have that same quality. It needs to be more textural. It needs to have the movement quality of being like sharp and fierce. So this was Joanne's group, which is why black was no good for her and the leopard print dress looked so great. She has this fierce energy. And then the last group, the final movement. The signature of the last group is no movement. No movement is actually a movement. And it's not that these people don't move. It's just that they're not going to move unless they know that it's the right move they know where they're going and then it is a very clean straight line so these are people who need a lot of um, alone time their look is bold it's clean they have a low movement in who they are and so their clothing needs to have that too so they like things that stick right to them that hold their shape so this is my corner and I've found all of this to be true. I want everything to just to stay with me. The key is that your clothing goes with you, that your clothing moves and expresses the way you move and express. In that, you'll find the resonance. You'll find that attractive, authentic look, and you'll find that people can see you better, that they can hear you better, and that they can feel you, what you really mean. So you're gonna get a better connection. Even so, even if you can master this, you still must be brave enough to show up in your life and in your relationships as your authentic self. I had a client a couple years ago who came. Definitely hope you guys are enjoying uh, this second lecture. She's definitely saying a lot, just like the last lady was and um making it very plain 
there's this, I, I think, so much that can be learned in the, the, the first 15 minutes that we've been listening to this uh, lecture. And uh, we've got about five more minutes to go. Roughly four or five minutes. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you are enjoying the podcast for today and that you learn something new. Came in because her husband had bought a gift card for her to go through our process, which is very nice of him. But she came in and she was wearing all black, heavy, kind of shapeless stuff. And she has this long hair and all of that's totally fine. But the thing I remember about her is that she just, she felt really guarded. It was like she had like a block on her heart and her hand was up like this. And I've done this work long enough to know that that comes from something. That's a, I need to protect myself type of thing. Like, I don't want you to see me. And she really wasn't buying it when I was talking about how we were going to draw at her authentic beauty. And like, here she was going to appear and she was just kind of sitting there like, yeah, okay. So I really was not looking forward to this appointment. But by the time it came around the following week, I'd gotten myself in the right place. And I reminded myself that the most important part of this job is simply to see someone. And so that's what I was going to do. And during our appointment, we went around and what we, what we do is we test people in these different groups. So we'll put you in clothing that has, you know, each of these movements expression, and we're looking for that match. And when you see the match, uh, when there is a match, you can see it, you can feel it. And so we get around to that first corner, which is the highest level of movement, the brightest, most animated level of movement. And it's a match for her. You never would have known it. You never would have known it by the way she looked, by the way she was expressing herself, none of that. And yet there it was. And she's wearing this like pink blazer and it has this like cute little, you know, all these little cute details. And it was like her spirit just filled the room. It just got bigger and it was beautiful. And I was like, ah, I'm so good. You look so good. And she felt good. And we're laughing and we're dancing and we're celebrating her freedom and the permission that she's been given to be herself. But then she looks at me and she says, but I could never wear this though because my husband would just tell me that this is only something a skinny person could wear. And the energy just shrunk back down into her. As she changed back into her clothing that she'd come in with, gosh, it was just so sad. Her whole countenance just returned to that depressed heaviness. And we all noticed it as she walked out, her voice lost its energy. You couldn't see her anymore. And we didn't hear from her again. The question is not whether or not you have style. It's whether or not it's being expressed. Moral of the story, story ladies. If, if the man is not working, leave him. If that person is not working, leave him. 
If that woman is not working, leave them. All right, let's continue. We're almost finished. Got just like a little bit to go. Thank you. Oops. And so that is the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I do apologize for how long it's taken for me to get this particular pop-up episode out. Even though it is a pop-up episode, I like to, you know, get my episodes out in a timely fashion. But uh, sometimes things happen. Um, and yeah, sometimes sometimes things happen. Um, but thank you so much uh, for joining me today. If you learned something new, uh, definitely uh, continue to um, listen to my content. Uh, if you liked it, definitely let me know if you have any questions. I'm always with that as well. Uh, yeah, Madam Butterfly out.